Welcome to the Media Mavens Podcast. This is the podcast where you'll find the latest and greatest trends, topics, and tribulations with industry leaders. And now, here is your host, the CEO of Access Entertainment and the Media Excellence Awards, the original media maven herself, Sarah Miller. Hi, this is Sarah Miller, CEO of Access Entertainment and the MEAs. And welcome to Meet and Maven Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Joe Pirates, who's a sportscaster and public policy and advocacy executive. Hi, Joe. Hello, Sarah. Today, you're going to really like today's show. Is uh, Robert Tursex here. And anybody who is dubbed as a TV anarchist is definitely on my side. So I think this is going to be a good, fun show to listen to. Yeah, so we're excited to have you here, Robert. Robert Tursek is the CEO and co-founder of Direct Education Worldwide and a digital pioneer that I have known personally for about 12, 13 years without aging ourselves. So Robert, welcome to Meet and Maven Podcast. It's good to talk to you. Thank you, Sarah. And hello, Joe. I'm happy to hello. be here. Good. So give us a little bit of feedback because I've known you for a while, but the masses globally may need a little update on you. I know you're a digital pioneer. You put gaming on the map. I've run into you in gaming, music, all things mobile, given who we are. Give us a little bit of background of what you're working on. And then um, uh, Direct Education Worldwide is a new company. Yeah, yeah. I started a company during during a pandemic. Yeah, I'll get to that in a second. But just to answer the question, so for more than 25 years, I've been designing and developing new services. And I'm kind of crazy about it. A lot of people launch something and stick with it for a long time. And I'm always interested in the next thing. And I've been doing it again and again and again. So every 18 months or so, there's a new platform of some sort or another. And I'm always curious about what kinds of experiences can we deliver on them. And so um, my my background includes things like some of the very earliest computer games for a company called Seventh Level here in Los Angeles. I worked with MTV, launching MTV and satellite platforms all over the world. I was a creative director there for a number of years. Um, I, um, I worked at Sony launching some of the first big multiplayer games on the web, particularly uh, for the browser. And then, um, and then after that, I went to Packet Video, where we put the very first video on mobile phones. And this was considered crazy. That's when they called me the TV anarchist because uh, <laughs> people were like, wait, television on a phone? Aren't those two totally separate things? And I'm like, not yet, not happening soon enough. It'll be a reality. And so uh, it was hard for people back in the 90s to get the idea that all these devices were going to kind of converge, but they did. And then I started putting games on the phone because games on a phone, to me, always made a ton of sense. You got the phone in your pocket and the interface was terrible. Then when the iPhone came along, it got much, much better. Then I worked for Oprah Oprah Winfrey. And this was super cool because Oprah's mission-driven and she's quite passionate. And she's a fun person to work with because when she says, go to the website, millions of people show up. So you can really do something at gigantic scale with Oprah. And she and I shared a passion for education. And that's actually important for what we're going to talk about today because... Oprah was like, if we're going to do education on the web, let's do it large scale. Like, let's try to reach millions of people. And we did. Together, we reached tens of millions of people with education programs. That was super fun. That was about 10 years ago. And um, as soon as the pandemic struck, uh, I had been flying around the world. I was a consultant. I was working with clients all over the place. And I started to realize sometime in the end of January, beginning of February, I was like, maybe flying around isn't such a good thing to be doing at this point. And so then I started to become very clear that they were going to shut things down. I got back to Los Angeles where I live and I was like, hmm, if I can't be flying around, what am I going to do? And I got together with some of the folks that I've worked with for many years who designed and developed new things. And we were like, what can we do to help? Now, we're not doctors and we're not people who work in clinics, so we couldn't help in a hospital. We thought about it a bit because uh, actually a friend of mine, a close friend had COVID-19 early in March and was so sick, he had to go to the hospital. And they turned him away. And that was actually happening to everybody I knew. I don't know if that's true everywhere in the country, but here in LA, most people were getting turned away at the hospital. And that seemed quite cruel at the time because you would go home, even if you were very sick. But the reason for that, it turned out, is that there's no medical cure. There's nothing they can really do for you in a hospital. If you need life support, they've got that. They'll put you on life support. But if you're going to heal on your own, basically sitting in a hospital bed, taking up a bed in a hospital isn't really going to solve any problems for anybody. So they send you home. And that's when a light bulb went off. We realized, holy shit you actually can't solve this problem with medical, any kind of medical care or any kind of like um, intervention, you know, medical intervention. You can, you can you know, help people who are super sick that might be in danger of dying and keep them alive. But people are actually going to have to cure themselves. And we realized, okay, the best thing to do in the circumstances is prevention. 
And we were like, what can we do with information that teaches people how to prevent this disease? So we kind of went nuts and became experts. We dove into the subject in a huge way. We partnered up with a team of expert epidemiologists. It's a group called APIC, A-P-I-C, the Association of Professionals in Infection Control and Epidemiology. It's the largest group of professional epidemiologists in the world. And folks, for those who don't know what an epidemiologist is, an epidemiologist is somebody who studies epidemic diseases. These are the people that the folks at the Centers for Disease Control and the folks at the World Health Organization turn to for expertise. Like, what should we do to contain this epidemic? And so we spoke to them and said, hey, we want to figure out a way to take the same practices that you do in a hospital or a clinic to stop the spread of disease. How can we take those same practices and bring them into the workplace? Because that's not what we have to do. That's, that's where the disease is. When people go back to work, there's an outbreak. And we wanted to stop that, solve that problem. Together with APIC, we developed a thing called COVID Smart. COVID Smart is a training program. It's an occupational training program. And so if you take this course before you go back to work, you'll be smart. You'll know the things to do and the things not to do so that you can prevent the disease from spreading around. But the best part about it is if everybody in a company is trained on the same set of standard behaviors, then you all know what to do. And so you can look at each other and kind of, you know, check each other out, make sure everybody's doing the same things, doing it properly. And this really matters because if you, as you've noticed here in the United States, people tend to be pretty independent. Mm-hmm. Some people will wear a mask. Some people won't. Sometimes you give out a mask at work and some people wear it the wrong way. They wear it with their nose sticking out or their mouth or hanging down by their neck. That doesn't solve a problem. It doesn't do anything. It's, it's, it's a security theater. And so we teach you exactly how to put on your mask and take it off properly, how to maintain social distance. Even when you're at work, how do you run a meeting? How do you do like a, a you know, a, a team meeting if you're, if you're trying to social distance? and um, all the other behaviors that will help you prevent the spread of the disease. So that's COVID smart training. It's available now in English and Spanish. We're talking to people all over the world because this is useful in every country in the world. So we're starting to distribute it internationally as well. And it is the gold standard training product that teaches you the best behaviors that'll help prevent this disease. And your, and your APIC is a partner because I was looking into it. Um, COVID smart is now their software platform to help educate the masses on this. I mean, because I know, you know, being in LA, we've seen the tax there. I mean, I think there's taxing hospitals everywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and then and I am so, so grateful to say that I haven't known anybody who's come down with it because it, I was huh. like in panic mode, like, oh my God, everybody bubble wrap yourself. You know, I need my family, my parents, my students, everybody bubble wrap, stay away, hazmat suits, you know. But, um, you know, things got a little more lax. And I think we went through a phase of fear. And then we went through, okay, let's just go back to work. This thing's like a common cold, but now it's such a novel virus with now that data and hard medicals coming out that the long haulers are having such horrible problems yeah. and it's affecting the organs. And we yeah. were talking, John, we're talking with, I'm actually with Ralph Simon, um, yeah. our mobile godfather yeah. and, you know, inertia about stuff. And I'm a big believer being in tech of contact tracing on the phone, big brother or not you want to save lives. And right now I want to know how to be smart about going out, but I also want to know who I'm around. So I yeah. think what you're doing is a tremendous thing that um, we just, we need it. But yeah, everybody it- needs this. So here's the funny thing. Everybody thinks they know how to do this stuff. Like everybody says, Oh, I know how to wash my hands. But if you think about that, your mom taught you how to wash your hands when you were like two or three years old, you probably haven't had an upgrade since then. And chances are you're not washing your hands the way the Centers for Disease Control will recommend, right? So you're, there's nine steps involved in properly hand washing. So we try to take you through all of that and provide that information to workers. And again, the point is that you're reassured knowing, even if you do know all that stuff, you're reassured knowing that everybody else on your team knows it as well. And that's the key thing. If everybody does these behaviors, we're going to really slow down the spread of the disease. You can't stop it. We can't tell people, oh, it's a safe environment. You can't say that because yeah. the virus is out there and we don't have any immunity from it. And so therefore you're, you're all vulnerable. Yeah. But what you can do is you can dramatically reduce the spread of the disease. You know, remember how epidemiologists are taught is typically they go out and do field epidemiology. And an example of that would be going to the Congo during an outbreak of Ebola and stopping it. And, you know, that disease was spreading very rapidly. And then when the epidemiologists showed up six weeks later, they had it under control. Is this something, is this, is this geared towards, you know, first responders? Is it hospitals, universities, or yeah. is this really just towards consumers on a broader level to so, try to get control and contain it? Yeah, it's a great question. So this is for businesses and this is for workers and businesses. And the reason we did it that way is that what we're really trying to do is help businesses reopen safely. 
right? So right now, the way it works in the United States, at least, is about half the people, just about 45% of workers are at home. And they can continue to do that indefinitely. And actually, they're pretty productive. Uh, people are working at home. The other 55 or 56%, those are folks who have to go to work. And they're really exposed. And you know that the number of cases in that group of people has gone up dramatically. The people working at home are pretty safe because if you just keep your house clean and you know mind your steps, you're going to be okay coming, coming home, staying home. But the people have to go out every day. They really risk it. Well, more and more companies want people to come back and they want to do that safely and they want to do it soon. Now, what we've seen happen in the last two months is one state after another reopens the economy and the workers all come back, but everybody thinks, oh, we're back to things as normal. This is a mistake. As soon as you go back and you just do the normal things, it's quite easy to do that, right? You kind of fall into a trance when you show up at work. And so everybody just snaps back into like the old way of doing things. That's when you get an outbreak. It only takes one person again. And then everybody has to go home. Everybody goes in quarantine. They have to disinfect the whole place. Business is disrupted. You get brand damage. You know, people think your company's skeevy. Not only that, you can get a lawsuit. Uh, because if you're an employer and you bring your workers back without training, you are definitely set up for a negligence lawsuit. And you probably will have a tough time defending it because you have to show you've taken a reasonable precaution. So we're trying to help workers and, and employers come back safely, minimize the risk to workers, and at the same time, protect the employers from getting sued. So the whole idea there is to say to the, you know, the, the world at large, you can restart an economy safely, even though there's a pandemic going on. There's a way to do that. You can actually go back to work. It's not going to be exactly the same, but the steps we, we recommend are very simple. There's only a few steps. If you just do these things, you're going to dramatically reduce the risk. Now, the second thing we do, Sarah, is we provide certificates to the people who finish the course, but also to the business. And those certificates can be posted in the window and they're quite cool. They're, um, I know this is audio only, but they show the world that the place is open for business. It's COVID smart. Nice. And then if you scan the QR code, the QR code will tell you exactly how many people in that facility were trained and when they were trained so that it gives the public reassurance that the, the proprietor of that business is doing everything they can to keep everybody as safe as possible under the circumstance. It's like when um, you get the A plus or the food ratings on the window just like the food ratings it's just just another way to keep it safe and we did get shut down again and everybody's just expecting a third shutdown says california but the thing in september and october when it starts getting cold on the east coast we're going to have a massive second wave outbreak that's what everyone's concerned about maybe we won't but based on everything that's happening right now if you notice the numbers have gone down but they kind of plateau they're not they didn't continue to go down right so we're still getting 35 40,000 sick people every day and somewhere between 500 and 1,000 people a day are dying. That's no joke, by the way. That means every three days, that's like a 9-11. We should be more concerned about it. We've all gotten numb to it. But what everyone's afraid of is that sometime in the fall, when it gets cold on the East Coast and in the North, you're going to start to see those numbers skyrocket. And we're going to be right back where New York was back in March. And yeah, this is a very gonna, scary thing. It's going to People want to travel so bad. And you know, in California, they're going out to the beaches. It's just they're so lax about it. And it's just this thing is so serious. And it's going to get worse now. They're saying, you know, it's going to mutate with the cold and flu. Yeah. And, and I know you're, tar- you're targeting COVID smart towards businesses. But do you have a, like for people, like you said, who are not into a big corporation, the big factories, the restaurants, but they need to be, is there anything? Because I feel like there's a lot of individual consumers, small business owners who aren't yeah. big companies who still aren't sure how serious this is and what to do to protect themselves and people that come in. Like look at trainers. Look at um, Aristotle, people that are independent, which mm-hmm. is a lot of right now, people who are working at home, you go out, you run around, you run errands, um, veterinarians. I mean, isn't there a consumer based in yeah, one? Or sure. no, we, we, we also have an individual version that you can sign up for. So right now we're in the middle of doing our first certifying our first shopping center. And the shopping center has been great to work with 66 stores. You can imagine it would have been a hassle to go to each of those 66 stores and try to persuade them to do this. That would take a lot of time. But we did it together with the shopping center management. And they were like, don't worry, we'll distribute this to all the stores. Really cool. So some of those stores, some of the shops just have one or two employees. And so those folks are all going to get trained up now. The cool thing is then we'll be able to certify the entire shopping center. So when you arrive, there'll be signs that say, welcome to the shopping center. We are COVID smart. Here's what that means. Scan the QR code. You can find out more about it. Here's some things you can do. And we have signs that teach you how to put on your mask, how to take it off properly without contaminating your hands, how to do, how to do the hand washing. So all the washrooms will have these new special hand washing signs and stuff. But most importantly, each of the shops will be trained to the same standard. The problem we're solving there is that what people have been doing on their own is coming up with their own signage. And you probably noticed this. I, I live in Hollywood where people are pretty creative. 
and there's some pretty funky shops. And you have hand, like, handwritten signs and cryptic graphics. No one knows what they mean or typos. And it doesn't inspire any kind of confidence, yeah. right? So I see that stuff and I'm like, hmm, this is not what it's going to take to bring co- shoppers back and get them yeah. excited about going out in public. So I think better is to say, hey, we signed up for this program. It's the same program. Everybody's doing this program. These are the absolute best standards. They're certified by this organization, APIC, and they are really trustworthy. They're the experts. That's the kind of message we're trying to send. And then what that tells the public is people take this seriously here. The second thing it tells the public is you should take it seriously too. So it really starts to spread the best practices into the community. Let me uh, ask this one question. Was it hard getting buy-in from APIC? on this, uh, on this venture, because anybody who starts that is amazing. Listen, they're fantastic people. So the APIC folks typically are the ones that are frontline, right? So they're in the hospitals right now and they're working their bones off trying to get this thing, you know, under control. Right. So we first reached out, it was hard to get attention because they're like, sorry, we're a little busy here. There's this pandemic going on. But when they heard about what we were doing, they were like, this is great because they speak to principally, they speak within the clinical community. And they speak mm-hmm. in a certain way with a lot of credibility in the scientific and medical community because they're the experts. The problem is that language doesn't travel very far, right? So the average person doesn't even know what they're talking about sometimes. And so we help them de-jargonize it. And this is actually where a bunch of Hollywood people working with a bunch of medical people can work together quite well because we translated that information. It's still very accurate, but we put it in plain English and plain Spanish that anybody can understand. And that's a really important thing. So for, from APEC standpoint, we're helping them reach a group of people that they didn't really reach very much in the past. And of course, they bring this incredible credibility. So, you know, nobody knows people in the general public, they're not familiar with that acronym APIC. They don't know it because it's not part of the world, but they will check it out because they're like, what's APEC? And they look at it and they're like, oh, cool. I didn't even know there was a group. And then, of course, they've got a ton of other information that's incredibly useful on the website. So in a way, this is great because we're connecting the general public to this idea that there is a very credible organization working very hard to set these standards for many years. There's so much misinformation. Mm -hmm. Everybody's pulling it from social media. Social media is such a trash can of regurgitating other people's stuff. And there's a few people that think they're industry leaders or digital mobile leaders, but they're just regurgitating the same stuff. I just think it's all about smoke and mirrors. And people, unless you're a doctor or in science or somebody like you with COVID smart, social media is the last place people should be reading and going and feeding off of to get their information. There's a lot of bad information. And, and candidly, Sarah, you know, that's why I got into this, right? Because yeah. you know me, I'm on social media and I'm like wasting hours fighting trolls all the time. People are spreading disinformation and bad information. Right. And it makes me nuts because sometimes it's just downright falsehood. That'll make people complacent or make them uh, not take it quite as seriously as they should. And that's risky, right? Because in this case, people can die. It's one thing if people want to argue about the election or the president or what, whatever. I mean, why get into it? I think everybody's got social media fatigue on those, those topics. But when it comes to a pandemic, it's actually quite dangerous to spread bad information. Well, but people so, comment, though. People comment, then you see their comments, their comments. And I put it posted on my social feed on Facebook that I think it, you might have seen everybody's opinion is not right, wrong, or indifferent. It's just your opinion. You're not a doctor. You're not um, a scientist. You want to start an argument? Get off my Facebook page or I'll block you. Don't argue shit on my Facebook page without any qualifying background. And being in a PR firm, I'm able to get away with that stuff. So I clearly posted that because I don't want it. This misinformation, it's not accurate, which is what I love, but which is kind of goes into, and I know Joe has some questions is, the advocacy part of this, because I've talked to a few congressmen about PPP and COVID and stuff on some other interviews and the book I've coming out. Are you going, are you taking this on a wider net to Congress, to advocacy people to start spreading the news? Because this is a central intelligent hub of the right way to fight and get ahead and contain this thing. There's not a lot of resourceful places to go to. Well, Sarah and Joe, we're taking this as broadly as we possibly can. So we're, we're taking it out to anybody that'll help us get the word out. And that could be anything from uh, any level of government. We are talking to people in the federal government. We're certainly talking to people at the state level and the city and county level. Uh, it, t- turns, it turns out that the cities tend to own the problem. And the reason they own the problem is um, the state or the county can make the rules about opening and closing the economy. But when they do, you're talking about the tax base of the city that's getting shut down. And so mm-hmm. the problem ends up being local business. It really very quickly turns into local business has this gigantic issue. And, and you're going to see that 
in the unemployment figures as well, because you know a huge number of the unemployed come from the hospitality and food business, right? So as soon as you shut those businesses down, the management, they don't have any choice. Like they, they can't keep paying people if they've got no business. So what happens is that you start to see that show up and it erodes the tax base for the city. So we've been working closely with them, uh, with city governments, about how best to roll this out at city scale. And it's pretty cool. Some cities have asked us for a true city scale deployment. And that would mean all the city employees, and some cities have thousands, thousands of employees, and then all the schools in that in that town. So all the public schools and the administration and teachers and the janitors and the staff in the schools, and then all the small businesses as well. So that's a pretty comprehensive deployment. And of course, the cities also have a lot of place to put the signage because they've got all those you know signs on the lampposts and they've got other places to hang signs and put up posters and so forth. So they can get the word out. And that's that's the second half of it, right? It's one thing to teach people. It's another thing to, to make people aware that there is this set of practices. If we do all that stuff, though, what we're going to see is a dramatic drop in the incidence of this disease. So it's really worth the effort. And it is the only thing that works right now. Until there's a vaccine, and that might be a year, it could be even further off in the future before right. there's a vaccine available at scale. Some people say there'll never be a vaccine. Well, if that's true, then we all got to learn how to deal with this disease and live with it. And that's behavior change. And that's exactly what COVID Smart teaches, behavior change. I'm glad that you guys are targeting uh, schools because, I mean, we're coming up to the fall now. Yeah. And we're seeing, yeah, we're seeing, uh, in fact, I was watching a, a demonstration today that, uh, you know, kids want their teachers to go back to work, but the teachers don't feel safe. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a dirty cycle that keeps on, you know, going around and around. And Robert, you've seen that before, I'm sure. It's an impossible problem to solve, Joe, because you've got the teachers on the one hand, and they're right. They don't want to be in a classroom with a bunch of sick kids. On the other hand, the parents, they got to go back to work. And so they're trying to get the kids in school. And this is an unsolvable problem. It's a giant issue. We're right in the middle. That's true. Is it hard to make people buy into this at times? I mean, I think that they want to right now. Yes, that's what I'm thinking. Is, is that they want to buy into this thing in the world to get out there? Because as soon as people hear about it, they're like, "Great, can I get it?" Yes, I want it. Because of course you do, right? If you have a business, like, first of all, you have to understand, business owners care about their employees. I know there's this myth of like the cruel business owner who is cruel to their employees. I, I've never met that person in my life. I, I know a lot of people who own businesses; they care deeply about their employees, and they want them to be healthy, and and, and partly for selfish reasons because they want the company to keep running without a disruption. So they have a lot of reasons yeah. to make sure their employees are safe and healthy. And also, let's not forget, if you're all coming to the workplace, nobody wants to take something home that somebody else brought. So we also care about that. So employers really do care. And this program brings immediate benefit. It only takes about 45 minutes. You can find it on the web at gotoworksmart.com. We're calling it that. So you go to work okay. smart. Don't just go to work. And uh, you go to work smart. You bring this with you. You can do it before you go to work, You know, before you call people back to the workplace. So generally speaking, employers like it. Uh, they also, it's available on any smartphone or any kind of computer. And that's important because some folks don't have a computer. Mm-hmm. And so we made it, we made sure that it works just fine on any kind of smartphone. And, uh, and then, you know, some people say, well, what if they do it at home with their family? Our feeling is great. That's yeah. fine with us. Like for sure, the whole family should sit down and learn how to do this because then they're going to adopt those practices at home and they'll probably be safer. And if you take this course yourself, if you, if you go to go to worksmart.com and go sign up for COVID smart. You'll experience it like that. It takes about 45 minutes and you'll probably be going, yeah, I know that. Okay, I've already heard about that. I know that. And then there'll be one thing where you're like, oh, I didn't know that. Three out of four things, you'll be like, got it, got it. And then there's like, oh, that's new. And that's going to be everybody's experience. But different people don't know different things. And so what we're doing is level setting on the common practices that make sense for everybody. And this gives you great assurance. And so the people who love it the most are employees. And I've now dealt with a bunch of retail shops here in Los Angeles where we've got them started in the program. And I always ask the employees what they think. And they say the number one thing they're worried about is their customers. This is really creepy if you think about it. If you're working like a boutique or a little shop, customers come in. They don't always wear a mask and you don't know where they've been. And you sure don't know how they behave at home or what practices they're doing and at they're home. they're touching everything and yeah. just, yeah. And they might be coughing and sneezing and not covering up. And you're in that box all day long if you work there. You can't like go out. You don't even always have the stuff to sanitize or clean the surfaces. So it's a little risky for the people at work. Not a little, a lot. And they're worried about it. So they tell me they're afraid of their customers. So one of the reasons we designed all the signage to face out to the customers is to kind of let them know in a gentle way. It's like, hey, if you're coming in our store, this is the way we roll. We all do it this way. You want to come in here and be with us? No problem. Just observe these standards, please. And in that way, the store owner is not just training the employees. They're also training everybody in the community, everybody comes in. That's a pretty positive message to get out there right now at a time when America is so polarized and people can't agree on anything. 
One thing right. we can do is we can all agree to these simple steps to keep our community safe. Are you working with, oh, is, it, is, it, is it OSHA? Um, you know how you walk into stores or in the back of employees, um, break rooms, whatever, and they have all those posters on the board, you know, occupational hazards, safety. They've got to follow certain rules and regulations as well. Are you working with those guys? So instead of having the OSHA posters, standard COVID smart, here's the five steps that are posted on every single back wall. Yeah. So uh, we, we're not directly working with OSHA or any federal agency, and that's because they don't endorse private business products at all. So they wouldn't endorse this. But everything that we do is completely compliant with those guidelines. And if you notice, now a lot of people don't know this, small business owners in particular, OSHA requires that you train your employees before they come back to work. A lot of people don't know that. That's a requirement. So in other words, if you bring your employees back and you're like, yeah, whatever training, I'm not going to do it. You could be in real risk. You could be really putting yourself in jeopardy if you don't do that. OSHA doesn't tell you how to do it. Uh, you know, that's a different job, right? But there are CDC guidelines and CDC guidelines were completely compliant with the CDC and the World Health Organization. And these are really good standards. They're the ones that everybody should be aware of. And like I say, most people are aware of some of this. Nobody's aware of all of it. We're trying to get everybody on that same level to understand how it works. Robert, you've been on the leading edge of inventing basically media, the way we digest media on uh, digital platforms. Let me ask you, has COVID changed? I mean, has it set it back or has it moved it forward? Oh, it's accelerating everything. Joe, a few years ago, I wrote a book called Vaporized, and it was about replacing physical stuff mm -hmm. with software. And at the time, I thought that was a perfectly obvious idea, but it turned out it was just at the very beginning of something that has now turned into this juggernaut that's reshaping the entire economy. You just think about Uber, right? Before Uber, if you were a teenager, you couldn't get around town unless you had a license and a car. Now, kids who are even like 12 or 13 years old, if they have a mobile phone, they can get access to a car driver with Uber Pool. They can split the cost and it's a couple bucks. And you see kids in LA driving around that way, not now because of COVID, but before COVID. So this process of vaporization, replacing physical stuff with software is the biggest media story in history. Because what it's allowing the digital media industry do, to do is to absorb entire other industries. And it's not limited to transportation or television, those things for sure. You know, Netflix is a great example of dematerialized TV. So for sure. And of course, during COVID, we've been moving even more aggressively in this fashion. Everybody in the economy. Example, look what we're doing right now. We're on Zoom. What is Zoom? Zoom's a digital substitute for an office. And it works pretty good. Is it the same? No. Is it better? I don't know. Different ways, Right but it's a perfectly good digital substitute and it's cheap. It's actually free, yes. right? So that's a huge advantage over paying for office space, especially if you're not using the office space. So typically what we find with digital substitutes is they have to be equally good or at least comparable and they have to be significantly cheaper. And if, they're those, if, it's, if both of those things are true, then they grow really super fast. And by the way, think about what we're doing here with COVID Smart. The COVID Smart Training is an information substitute for medical care that doesn't exist, right? You can't get medication right now for COVID-19. So we're providing an information product that's a substitute for it. Folks, you're going to see this happen across the industry. The next big industry that's going to get transformed by digital technology and media is the healthcare field. It's right. a bloated field. They charge too much. Most of what you're paying for is not great personalized care. You're paying for a huge bureaucracy and a profit margin of 30 35%. And if you're getting pharmaceuticals, which is most of the care that you get these days is some sort of pill, you're paying for chemicals. Yeah. And I think we're going to look back at this era in 10 or 20 years and we're going to be like, wow, there was a really weird time around the turn of the century when we just medicated the heck out of the half the population. Right. So what all the big information tech companies are doing now, Microsoft, Apple, Google, Amazon, they're all moving into digital health. And the general theme, they all have different strategies. So it's not exactly the same. Each one's got a different strategy. But the general theme is that they're using information as a substitute for chemistry. Right. They're trying to give people information, use data, track what they're doing, recommend different behaviors, similar to what we're doing with COVID Smart, to get them to do that instead of getting sick. So they're trying to keep people to the left before they go into the healthcare system, right. keep them off to the left where they're healthy and the healthy population. You know, if you think about it, we don't really have healthcare in the United States. We have sick care. The sick. system doesn't really start until you're sick. And then it kicks in and it's quite good, generally speaking, uh, you know, depends on your own insurance provider. But generally, U.S. healthcare is okay if you have it. If you don't have it, it's terrible. But the big problem is it's incredibly expensive because we wait until there's a problem. And what the tech companies are realizing is we now have so much data and we have sensors and everybody's wearing, you know, sensors on their wristwatch and sensors in their phone and so forth. We can harvest that data and start to make some predictive uh, analysis about what people are doing and how they might do it differently and make recommendations, make intelligent recommendations that will keep them healthier longer. 
Now that all sounds really great unless you work for a pharma company because yeah. a pharma company actually wants you to get onto a lifestyle medication. That's their business model. They want you to subscribe to medication the same way you subscribe to Netflix. And so if you're going to be healthier longer, that means you're going to sell, that person's going to buy fewer pills in their lifetime. So the lifetime of the value of that customer goes down. When I talk to healthcare companies, I'm trying to make them aware of this dynamic because we've seen it happen in transportation, in automotive, every type of media. As soon as there's a digital information product, your need of that old thing goes down dramatically. And the lifetime value of that customer goes down dramatically. And that is ultimately an existential challenge for those companies. So you heard from me, watch this happen in healthcare next. It's happening right now. Okay. Well, it's not not about preventative and health meds becoming such a big thing in technology. You know, we have a lot of big companies coming out for health med for the MEAs and stuff. There's a company in Texas we worked with on a mobile site. We created a mobile app for hospitals. So that user experience, I mean, they're not about keeping you healthy. They're about easier way to get through mm-hmm. hospitals to find where you need to go without the added stress of being the reason why you're there. So I do think health med has got to innovate and use technology and the big data and analytics are ridiculously huge right now with whoop, with some of these apps we have going on. It just gets better and better, right? As you get richer, richer data. Sarah, you remember when I was at Packet Video and we were putting video on phones and people were saying, what's the use case? And we were like, well, you know, you watch a music video, the news or a sports clip or something. That stuff was fairly obvious. But then we would say, well, you know, you might use teleconferencing to talk to your doctor. And people are like, no way. There's HIPAA laws. That's not compliant. There's a data risk. No one's going to trust the video phone. For that and stuff. Okay. Fast forward to now, COVID-19 hits in 2020. And you're like, yeah, suddenly I don't really want to go to the clinic so much. There's a lot of sick people there. I might get sick. Like, I'd rather stay at home. And I had a knee thing. I hurt my knee. I had to see a doctor. And I'm like, the last thing I'm doing is going to a clinic for a knee problem during COVID-19. So I called the guy on the video app. And it worked fantastically well. I'm like, why would I ever go back and like deal with parking and waiting in the lobby? And all? Why do it? You know? But so I, I think that's interesting because I had a doctor's going for a checkup, you know, for all the you know, brain surgeries I had. And you couldn't pay me to go to a hospital right now or a doctor's. I got like, yeah, not happening. Post-op from December will be post-COVID op. We're not doing it. But I just had a general conversation and I'm like, oh, I just need to go in for a regular routine, you know, get blood tests, cholesterol, all the basics. My doctor, you can't come in. You're not sick. You don't need to oh, see okay. us here. Good. Yeah. So we're doing a Zoom call just to have a chat. And I love that's becoming so easy. And it's so funny because I... Somewhere between the packet job and Sony, I know we worked with you. Somewhere between all of this innovation that you've led, but you know, and I, I know you, and I know about the innovation and the tech that we're all fighting on in the tech space. Is this scalable? Like right now, it's COVID smart because we're in COVID, we're in this pandemic. But and I know you from your history, Robert. Everything you've done, you've scaled up. You know, mm-hmm. you've evolved as far as you could go. Is this something that's scalable? So five years from now, three years, another, I mean, God forbid, hopefully no pandemics ever come around. But if one does, is this thing to where it's built from the tech side, able to be reskinned to do the same thing for other pandemics or other illnesses of people who need better education or more information on like cancer, unfortunately, and whatnot? It's a great question. So, you know, my company is digital is, is, uh, our company is focused on um, digital learning, right? We're not just focused on the COVID-19 problem. COVID-19 is the first problem that we're addressing. Uh, What we're really focused on is the number of displacements that are happening to workers. So workers are having to deal with all kinds of change. One type of change, of course, is pandemics. Another type of change is going to be diversity and a whole bunch of new people coming into the workforce, not just in the U.S. This is a global issue because populations are moving around. Another one is the climate change. You know, look at California right now. We don't just have COVID-19 happening. We also fires. have some of the hottest fires in history. You know, and it was 110 degrees yesterday. So you know, we have... We it's have actually 107 degrees today, but it was like 115, 117 in Arizona. Yeah. Wait, Joe, what's the weather right now? It's about 95 with smoke. <laughs> So so we think that the workplace has changed. And it's not just that it's dematerialized and that you can work from home. That's a big change. It's also network. So that's a big change. A lot of people still don't know exactly how to operate on a network. Also, the way our personal lives and our digital our business lives blend together in digital media creates all sorts of other confusion. Think about, you know, coughing Karen and these other folks who've been busted on social media and shamed, and then they get Mm. fired from their jobs because they don't realize in digital media, your personal life blends with your career. 
So we think that there's all sorts of training that we can provide to workers that'll help them adapt better to an ever-changing workplace. And if you think about worker training, it's a business that hasn't trained. It hasn't changed a heck of a lot in the last 10 or 20 years. A lot of it's still done in person. And some of it's done on computers, but it's, it's pretty lame, candidly. It's an area that's ripe for disruption, ripe for reinvention. That's what we're, we're bringing. So my company, Direct Education, is bringing that directly to workers, trying to equip them with skills that'll make them successful in an ever-changing workplace. Yep. So we're seeing a lot of stuff um, from COVID is the mental um, Yeah, it's a huge issue. It's a, it's a real grind, isn't like, it? It's exhausting. It is, it is. Yeah. And people, we're all grinding away as executives, but people always say, look for a certain sign. People are not educated of how to help and see the signs of others. So is that an area you're going to kind of move into with this? Or is this really go it's where the flow is? So, so the problem we're trying to solve right now is just the behaviors that will help you stay healthy and prevent this disease from spreading. But you're absolutely correct. There's this other issue, which is kind of like a long-term mental health issue. And it's connected to working from home because you also have this kind of creepy feeling all the time in the back of your mind at home. Like, you know, did I do it all correctly? Am I bringing some disease home? Am I going to get my kids sick? Are my kids going to get me sick? All this stuff is going on in everybody's mind. They're calculating that constantly in the back of your mind. So there is this kind of like long-term siege mentality and there's a kind of mental fatigue that occurs. And you're right. That's another opportunity. That's something that we can help people manage better stress levels. I think employers have the problem again. They have to solve this because the employees are being sent home. They're being told to work from home, but now they have all sorts of new stresses that they never had to deal with before. And there's no facility. There's no HR department there to respond to them and help them. What I would say on a personal level is um, you'll probably notice people are pretty touchy. Some people have a very short fuse these days. Uh, I ride a motorcycle here at LA and I can tell you, man, drivers have gotten worse, not better. Even though there's fewer cars on the road, it's much more dangerous. And it's because everybody handles the stress in a different way. And some people don't handle it especially well. Some people have a big emotional reaction. You know, they might not even be conscious of it. They're angry, they're tense, they're scared, they're nervous. So all these people are processing this um, kind of general sense of dread and malaise that's going through the whole economy. Everybody handles that in a different way. My advice would be give everybody the benefit of the doubt because we're all suffering through this whole stressful yeah. thing. You just don't know what somebody else is dealing with. And I don't want to detract from the criticalities of, this pandemic right now, because I know we're all dealing with it. But I do want to kind of shift gears for the next few minutes. It is education. Yeah. It is amazing what you've done in general. And you touch based on climate. What are some of the other areas? And like, how is this same premise in digital education? Are you applying towards climate change and some other areas that we should be aware of? Well, so imagine like in the future, the way you work, how you go to work, how you do your work, the business that you're in, the the way your products are made, the way your products are sold, all of that is subject to change. And sometimes it's all happening at at the exact same time. The drivers of it might be those things like, you know, environmental change or obviously a pandemic, Uh, but there's also digital disruption of all sorts, right? The six D's that are happening, dematerialization and demonetization and so forth, democratization. But you said six, I only heard two. Yes. Yeah, so, well, there's, there's a million. I could go on all day with the letter D. It just goes on and on. My favorite one is dematerialization because that's my subject matter for my book, Vaporized. Uh, but the point there is that uh, most people aren't experts in those topics. Most people are just on the receiving end. So we feel like we're at the subject of these forces that are reshaping our lives. And we feel quite powerless there. And my message is simple. You don't have to be powerless. You can understand how these dynamics work. Usually the dynamics themselves are not that complicated. You can understand them. Then you have to see, well, how is that affecting my own business or my own job in that company? And sometimes what you'll see is that this long-term is not the company you should stay at. You you might need to make a career decision. One thing you'll notice, I'm sure you both experience, is people can work from home now and they can be quite multitasking. They are capable of running a whole business out of their home. That's a revelation. Anybody who's been dealing with digital media for a few years, of course, we've all been working that way for 10 years or more. But I think for a whole bunch of people who just recently got chucked out of their office, they're realizing it for the very first time. And so they're going to have to master that learning curve. And my thinking is that this is not the first disruption that's going to happen in the 21st century. I think that's going to be increasingly the case. You know, part of the reason for that is uh, what Ray Kurzweil has been telling us for many years, which is that the rate of change itself is accelerating. So it's not just yeah. that we're having more and more change, but that the rate that new changes are coming is accelerating. And if you just think about that in your own life, you like how much new stuff is coming at you. And sometimes it is exhausting, right? It's just, it never seems to stop. Different ways to communicate, different ways, different tools that you can use. Now the tools changed. Oh, now I need to have some new security thing. Now I need a different VPN. Like just dealing with digital media forces you to constantly change your workflow, right? 
Now, folks on this call, we're all used to that. That's the world we've been in for years and years. But lots of folks, that's not their world. That's not their first thing. And so there's a big learning curve there. My message there is that the Ray Kurzweil suggestion is that rate of change is going to increase. And so you're going to see more change every single year. So the whole premise for my company, Direct Education, is that we're going to be the ones that guide you through the next wave of change, whatever that might be. Because soon enough, it's going to be crazy stuff like synthetic biology, you know, where we're programming biology or machines that can think and make ethical decisions on their own. Your boss might be a computer. That's a weird idea for most people. Yeah. I think for people like Wait, us, we're Apple like, is forward. my boss. Don't all CEOs answer to Apple? Huh. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to pick on Joe for a second. Just, Go for this, it. This is such an amazing, Rob, you have to hear it for a second. It's such an amazing conversation with you always. But Given the work at home, being safe, going back, Joe, from a university standpoint, and I know you're working from home and you've worked for the government and before, Mm -hmm. are you seeing this whole process coming into play in your experience with the universities and the city? Or are you, do you think they haven't quite adapted to the technology of what Robert's trying to launch right now? I think that's, especially at the school level, I think they're trying to adapt. And the big problem with universities are, is that you have so many different classes. You have, you know, do you have hands-on classes, let's say with engineering or with medical field, you know, are they going to be essential to be in the school? And, and that's uh, part of our research program is that we haven't been able to talk to people since uh, March 16th. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, you know, we won't, we have to take blood. We have to, you know, we have to do things with genomics. And it's been a real, it's been a challenge for people. And we've been trying to make sure that people are, are keeping busy, but at the same time is trying to figure out where are we going after this? Are you guys, do you think that universities will start adapting to new technologies moving forward to make it easier to communicate and stay in touch as a community? I think some of them are going to be kicked, uh, dragged kicking and screaming into the 21st century. And because they want, they want those students on campus because those campus, those campuses generate money for the community and for the school. And I think right now online teaching isn't going to pay the bills for many universities. This is a real problem, right? So they've got an ethical dilemma at the core of their business proposition. Many years ago, I started saying that the university business model is in trouble. And of course, all my friends at the universities were telling me to shut up because they didn't want to hear about that. And now here we are suddenly where it's not so safe to go back on campus. And and many of the schools that brought people back and didn't prepare properly, well, they all had an outbreak, right? Some schools had an outbreak within two days and they had to shut down and send people home. So yeah, I think it's a really significant risk for the universities to continue operating tomorrow as if it's the same as it was yesterday, because that's just not the case. And then at the core of it, what seems to be driving some of these decisions to bring people back on campus is to preserve an old business model that involves selling access to a physical campus. And I think all of that's gone. I think all that stuff has been vaporized. I wrote wrote about that in my book. It was the most controversial chapter in Vaporized, is the Vaporized University. Because you could deliver 100% of the educational curriculum digitally. You can't deliver the social experience and the sports and hanging out and go to a keg party. All that you cannot deliver in digital as successfully. So really the question of what's the essence of college? Is it the stuff that you learn in the classroom? Because that you can for sure deliver in a different, different format. Or is it all the socialization that you get on campus? Now the schools are trying to argue for both. And they're saying the best way to deliver it is on campus. I'm sympathetic to them. I feel sorry for the universities because they have this difficult problem. But the U.S. business schools that charge $60,000 per semester per year, they have a fundamental business problem. um, And I don't think they're going to solve it. I think you're going to start to see some universities and colleges either dramatically change, cut their costs, or reduce the number of classes. Yeah, I I completely agree with that. And What's kind of scary here, and and I'm not speaking as for one university, but for many universities, these are areas of learning and research, and many of them can't figure this out yet. Yeah. And those research facilities have to continue. That is an essential function of the university. And some of that research depends on all the other parts of the university, or at least that school, you know, that particular discipline. And so we don't have a great plan as a society right now. Like, how do you do that research without this huge apparatus of the university around it? We don't have a good answer for that right now. And unfortunately, the way our politics is in this country, we're not even having intelligent discussions about stuff like that. We're we're good at tearing down institutions. We're quite bad as a generation. We're quite bad at building institutions that are durable. 
Right now, we need a fundamental rethink of what those institutions are. What is the purpose of a university? And you're, Joe, you're absolutely right. You know, core research, fundamental research, that is a really important mission for universities. And that used to be at the forefront of what they did. I think some of that gets swept under the carpet now because we're so focused on creating like hot tub experiences and fun student unions and sports events and everything else. I tend to forget what the real mission there is. Right. I agree. Is this, is this Rob, let me ask you a question. Um, you know, because remember back when the Sony days and music days where we were all about music, the labels were not adapting to new technologies. Music's a dying breed. We did a big multi-global survey on music and 78% of the survey and one of the questions was music labels are not adapting to new technologies. We've seen the music industry crumble because they won't adapt to the digital, the mobile. They can make more money in the long term, but they won't give up a nickel and control now. And now we got Spotify, Pandora, streaming, and all this stuff. Do you think this same principle, old school business models, they don't work, they're falling apart, new technologies, can that same model more or less um, be applied towards the university system based on this conversation with you? 100%. So 100%. Anytime you have an old system that has some expertise, some knowledge, some unique knowledge, and they get charged a lot of money for that. Could be the medical profession, the healthcare industry, could be the universities. That's another great example, right? Could be the government with regulations. Like there's, there's a lot of big institutions that have at their core information, but the information is encoded into something physical. So at the university, it's encoded in the physical campus and the lecture halls and the professors and the books, right? And at the at the medical, in the medical places, it's going to be all the records that you've got in the hospital and all the equipment and the gear and so forth. So to the extent that you can substitute information that physicality and unlock that information, allow it to travel on a digital network, that's an opportunity for disruption. It's not an opportunity for a business model, by the way. It's an opportunity for disruption. You can blow up the old business. That doesn't mean you necessarily created a new good business. And Spotify is a great example of that. Spotify has you know, tens of millions of subscribers. Show me one music artist, one recording artist that's excited about Spotify. They hate it because they don't get paid enough. And Spotify yeah. just doesn't make it worth your while to be a recording artist. So what's interesting is it's one thing to blow up an old business model. Digital technology and Silicon Valley are brilliant at that. What they're not that great at doing is creating a new business model to come in its, come in its wake. And we've seen that happen in one industry after another. They gut these industries. They take out high-margin businesses that were good, that were created great jobs, that were created great careers, and provided a decent service. Maybe they were bloated. Maybe they're slow to change. Maybe they didn't understand digital technology. And for that, they got exploded. They got blown up. But what we haven't done is create similar good-paying careers uh, long-term stability in an industry. What we've done is we've just thrown this stuff into a blender and pieces keep coming out of it. I'm not quite sure if the analogy is perfect between music and the universities. What I do know is anytime your defense is an old building or a campus or a lecture in person, you got a problem on your hands because all that stuff can be substituted super quick. And it just takes one epic thing like a pandemic to push everybody into a category where they no longer need your product. And that's a crisis. Wow, what a scary thought. Why are we going into this gloomy topic? <laughs> I'll tell you what's booming. Here, let's talk about what's booming. So like as, what, as physical what stuff, it's it weird. Virtual reality is having a renaissance right now. And augmented reality and mixed reality of all kinds are having a renaissance. And it's really interesting because, you know, 2017, those were the boom fields. And then 2018, everyone was like, oh, it's not really that great. And by 2019, it was like, oh, the air went out of the bag and VR was kind of on its last legs. And a lot of VR studios closed and so forth. Gaming started to tick up. And what we have finally is uh, decent gear, right? So the first thing is you got to get, it's like getting to the first decent smartphone. They finally got to the first decent head-mounted displays. And uh, you know, Oculus uh, has, has great new head-mounted displays and everybody else is following quickly. So you're going to start to see more and more gear. By the way, they sell out. Every time Oculus comes out with a new device, it sells out instantaneously. So that's a really strong signal. Developers of games are telling me that their revenues are up four, sometimes 16-fold from a year ago. So they're, they're making money. What's way more interesting is because people are stuck at home and they're looking for stuff to do and they want to meet people and go out, what we're starting to see is social VR is really picking up where people are creating virtual meeting spaces. And you don't even really need virtual reality to do that because people are also creating that on the web in some capacity. I mean, in some respects, that's what we're doing here on Zoom. It's not VR. Although Zoom, you know, with the, uh, with the virtual backgrounds, they're saying that that's, that's the largest human experience of mixed reality ever in history. Right? People are starting to play around with changing out their background. Hey, that's like dipping a toe in the ocean of virtual reality. Some people are getting experience with that. 
And I think what will happen is more and more as people, as the systems get better and the equipment gets better and the experiences get richer and there's more diversity of experience and the tools to create it get a little bit easier. All that's happening right now. Then you're going to start to see a diversity of experience that grows and grows and people might start to develop a preference for it. And if your choice is sitting in traffic on the 405 for two hours to go to an office that never was that great in the first place, or strapping on a head-mounted display to do an immersive meeting, guess what? A lot of people are going to choose that latter one because that's a lot easier. And then you can take that headgear off and you're back in the real world in the comfort of your own home. Yeah. This, nice. this could so be another you- podcast altogether. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be, we are, we, we are running out of time, but we, I think, are going to check back in with you, Robert, to <laughs> pick up where we left off. But for right now, uh, this has been amazing. It's always great talking to you. Where can people get your book? Uh, the book Vaporized is available anywhere they sell books. You can certainly get it on Amazon. It's, it's Vaporized by Robert Tursick. Yeah. And COVID Smart is a training program. And you'll find that on the web at gotoworksmart.com. Don't go to work without a mask. Go to work smart. Get right. Smart. And I'm, I'm going to pick up Vaporized. I'll tell you that. I'm going to do that tonight. Yeah. It was you know, it's more relevant than ever, my friend. There you go. <laughs> you know, I just don't want to kiss it, but I know we're running out of time here, Robert. But I, we are definitely going to do Robert Tursick. Part two, um, pretty soon again. And three and four. And four and five. We're going to <laughs> two year ear off all afternoon. No, it was, go. It's great fun. To have, it thank you for so having amazing me. amazing to talk to you always and see your smiling face. It's so sad that we are like literally living five, 10 minutes apart in the same industry and I haven't seen you in six months. But um, this is Sarah Miller with Access Entertainment Media Maven Podcast. I want to thank Robert Tursek for being our guest on today's podcast and my co-host, Joe Pirate. So until next time, everybody, stay safe and take care. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Media Mavens Podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode or you want to find past episodes, subscribe to the Media Mavens Podcast on your favorite podcast provider. For more information, go to MediaMavensPodcast.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.